Welcome to episode 21 of Practically Ranching. We set a record this week. It's the longest one I've recorded yet. You may even consider it two separate episodes, the first 40 or 45 minutes on the production side and the last half uh, more on the on the marketing and live cattle, fed cattle marketing side. And you may want to break it into two pieces, but regardless of its length, it's a good one. And my conversation with Bruce Mershon is one that I, I kind of looked forward to having, not necessarily with Bruce, but with someone when we created Practically Ranching back late last spring. And, and I think it's well worth all of us listening to with open ears. Um, you all know my perspectives on marketing by this point. Bruce has a different perspective, and I welcome those perspectives, and, and I think we bring out some some good fodder here. Like I said, the first half, all we talk about is production side of things, and it's really interesting. And then the second half will be where we get into that marketing uh, scenario and, and, and talk about some different legislative pieces that Bruce feels need to be pushed forth. And so uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this intro because I want you to have plenty of time to listen to the real meat of the of the matter. But as always, thank you for listening to Practically Ranching, and we look forward to our visit with Bruce Mershon. All right, you still there, Bruce? I am here, Matt. Good. Did you happen to get any moisture last night, or was that south of you? We we got some this morning. Uh, we have puddles in the driveway this morning. I. Unfortunately, I think they'll all be gone the way the wind's blowing by afternoon, but it's it's a starting point. Yeah, we're right there with you. We didn't quite get puddles, but I've gotten to the point where we're measuring in one hundredths. I always could tell the difference between me and my western Kansas friends or panhandle Oklahoma and Texas friends. They'd always talk about a, a five hundredths or a fifteen hundredths rain and Gosh, up until the last year or so, we didn't even we didn't even measure that one. But nowadays, we got five one hundredths last night, and we were tickled to get, yeah. <laughs> to get it. So it's amazing how your benchmark and and the relative interest of moisture changes. Absolutely, I'm I would I would have to pull my glasses out. I have to pull them out to just figure out tenths. I'm not sure my gauge is good enough for hundredths, but we're, yep, yep. we're we're at that point. Maybe I need a new gauge. <laughs> well, hopefully the pattern will change. I'm seeing a few long-term predictions that maybe it will, but I'm sure we'll need to soon. Well, thanks for being here with us today, Bruce. If you would, just give us a little overview of Mershon Farms and uh, your family and your leadership and some things like that. That, that sounds great. Uh, you know, operationally here in West Central Missouri, um, Tracy and I have a, a, a cow-calf herd, and I, I guess we like to say we're active in all facets of the commercial cattle business. So we're running um, r- roughly around 2,000, a little over 2,000 mama cows here and uh, in west central Missouri, kind of scattered uh, from northwest Missouri through southwest Missouri. We're headquartered out of Buckner, Missouri, just here in Jackson County, just outside Kansas City. You know, Chiefs won again last night, so we're all feeling pretty good. Unfortunately, Tiger football hasn't been as much fun, but we're, we, we're, fortunately, we got the Chiefs to rely on right now. So, but we run run cows. We also retain ownership on the on those calves that out of our cows we'll finish all the steers, and then we'll breed roughly seventy five or eighty percent of those heifers. We'll we'll sink them up and AI them and uh, clean them up then, and then we'll market bred heifers through the Show Me Select program here in Missouri some just private treaty, and then also through the side and stricter genetics, they have a special bred heifer sale. We'll sell both bred heifers and 
and pairs through them. On top of that, we'll uh, we'll background our steers here in Missouri. Then they'll go to the feedlots, uh, Kansas, Nebraska, or Iowa, depending on what's going on in the market. We'll send those kids to the feedlots and then hopefully most of the time sell them on the grid and we'll, we'll track that carcass data back to our cows. All of our cows are in the Simital's uh, herd book system to create EPDs on our cows and our replacement females. And then on top of that, we, we try to background another three or 4,000 calves out of the sale barns, mostly out of here, out of Missouri. We'll put together, we have folks that background calves for us and, uh, you know, we'll sell them in load lots and or feed them ourselves. So kind of, kind of all segments of the industry here in Missouri. We have both sp- spring and fall calving cows. So we're trying to capture, you know, all of our equipment and our bulls and, and get, get double use out of them, both spring and fall. Are you split close to 50-50 on those fall and spring calvers? Yeah, it, it gets to where 45-55, but, but, but pretty close, yes. Okay. Give us a little feel for the history of your place. I know you've been a, a pretty rapid growth curve, in my opinion, in the beef industry, and I think that's a really great story as well. Yeah, thank you. So the family's you know, always had cows. My dad had 10 in his family and, uh, you know, four of the brothers farmed and my granddad, they always fed cattle. And we were the one that odd, odd group that had cows. Uh, but we've always had cows. And then we always fed hogs also just out on dirt. And, and, you know, in 98, that, that cured us of that disease. Uh, we no longer have hogs. So we kind of thought as a family, my brother and I, we, we kind of worked together. Um, and, the he crops and then we kind of own most of the cattle and then we decide after 98 well then we always have fescue in missouri no matter what the hog market's doing so we started growing a cow herd and started ai and heifers and just started growing it and that kind of went from the family always had maybe 150 200 cows to where we're at today and we kind of took over the cattle portion of it my brother took over the you know, manage the crop, but also was helping uh, with the cows. I worked off the farm through all this time for 34 years as a commodity trader. Fortunately, here in Kansas City, working for Bartlett Grain and also for Lansing Trade Group the last 15 years. So, and I've been full-time farming now for just four years. But at the same time, we were trying to grow this herd. And how we've grown it, I guess, is important. You know, we, we don't actually own an acre of grassland, essentially. We got a little hay ground here around Buckner, but it's all farm ground. And about half of our cows are out on a daily fee basis with the producers that provide forage and care. We provide everything else. And then the, the balance of them are on leased property with folks that work for us, both full-time and or part-time help with us on, on managing those, those cattle out on grass. And you said those cows would basically span the state north to south on the western, what, third of the state? Yeah, pr- pretty much. As far north is uh, Gentry, Missouri, up by Albany, and down as far as uh, Greenfield, down around Stockton. You know, we had pretty diverse moisture this year, you know, down around Stockton. It was it was bad, bad dry most all the summer, pretty pretty tough year. You know, in northwest Missouri, that we had a spot up there where the cows were it was just, it rained, seemed like constantly they had trouble getting their crops in. Lots of good grass. We had a group of cows up there. They're all four and five-year-olds, and we were we were 100% bred when we pregged those spring cows. Really wonderful. You know, and then we dropped down into the upper 80s, you know, where the grass is a little tougher that, that on the ones that we pregged. We've got most everything already pregged, and second round of shots in the calves, and we're, we're starting to wean. We've been started weaning now for about three weeks, so working through those groups. 
that's good to have that geographic diversity i know and like you said you years like this and, and i would i would venture to guess that even though you didn't get much more than puddles last night those cows down south they may have gotten a better rain it, it, it looked so. like something east of us kind of went through that far southwest missouri and, and maybe even west central yes i think we a little bit better although i would i would probably trade my geographic diversity and my pickup in for a big ranch somewhere that I could get into a, a tractor and drive from one to the one to the end to the other instead of every minute every time we go to check something it's a, a minimum of a 30 minute drive up to a two hour drive so I would trade it but you know that that's not really feasible in this part of the country so to have a big ranch so we'll just take what we got yeah besides the lack of availability of a of a big contiguous operation like that. What led you to make the decision when you started growing there in ninety eight early two thousands to do your forage and care daily fee lease type of arrangement on these cows as opposed to going out and investing in land and and finding a place or finding places that you would actually own the grass and the cows capital. Okay, no, that's, that's that's what I figured, yeah. but. Uh, we were, I, I, I went, when I left college um, in 1985, uh, I always thought I'd come home and farm. And I had found a, a girlfriend in college. And when I went home at Christmas and, and Tracy and I were talking on the phone during Christmas, my parents pulled me aside and said, well, it looks like you finally found somebody pretty special to you. And you, can, you have two options. You can come home and farm and we'd love to have you here. Or you need to go get and get a job if you're in love. But the last thing you're going to do is bring her back to this farm in 1985 and the struggles that we were going through uh, as a family and so financially. So I went and got a suit and interviewed. So you know, love one, new love won out over the old love of farming. And uh, you know, but I was fortunate to catch a job here close to the farm uh, and continue to be involved in it. And uh, you know, we've just just made that made that transition. And, took me 34 years to, you know, collect enough capital to dare farm full time, but that's where we're at now. So hopefully I get a couple more years before I leak it all away. Well, it seems like you're on a good path and you say it was young love that won out. I would say that, and I've never met your family or your parents, but I would say that your knowledge of risk management comes from them because in 1985, those were pretty, pretty wise words, I would say, to tell their, their young son. Yeah. Because it was obviously, a, it, every year is tough, but those were some of the toughest. Yeah, they were difficult. And they, they didn't get any better for a few years. And we were fortunate enough to be still, we're still here. So, so your time that you started there at Bartlett and then at, at you said Lansing Trade Group, if you had to give me the top two or three things that you learned from your time then that are benefiting you today running cows what would those be what i i should have what i should do is use you know i, I i'm pretty easily unfortunately i gotta say i can put my farmer cap back on and always be bullish even though i i learned not to be back then <laughs> so <laughs> which i wish Eternal i could optimists. say i take that Eternal home optimists. <laughs> You know, it, it it does help to understand the the markets a little bit about the, my input cost and some of those opportunities to to kind of know the relationships of you know wheat middlings or soy holes versus distillers. Those things are valuable uh, today with our with us retaining ownership and background in the cattle. The other thing I think it, it helped me 
being a manager of employees today, that all farm experience of, of having a staff and, and how to treat them and how to not lose my temper, even though you'd like to, like, you know, you, you can do, you do with your family, but you can't do with employees. Um, so, you know, there's a, a couple of those, uh, just, bi- just general business management that help today, I think. Yeah, those those are often traits that that our production farm and ranch leaders we we often don't have because we don't have to experience them a lot growing up. Quite often, especially on a, a smaller family operation, and so those those would both be very valuable, especially growing to the scale as what you have with the number of inputs and the number of employees that you've got. That that would be very valuable. You're pretty focused on genetics as you grow your commercial cow herd and. What's it been? Three years? Is it 2019 that you won the commercial VIF producer of the year? Yes, sir. Yes. Very. I remember yeah. that's where I met you first in South Dakota. And congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you. From a genetic standpoint, let's start with the with the female. When you go to select your replacement females, and, and obviously it sounds like you're breeding a lot more than what you need if you're keeping 75 to 80% of those heifers and then selling them, as you said, as, as breads. But let's talk two steps. First, who do you select out as your first 20 and 25% that you're probably retaining ownership and feeding, correct? Yeah. And then how do you pair that down after you get them bred? Who do you keep and then who do you sell and, and what traits, what indications do you use to, to make those decisions? You know, it's just mainly the, the not heads or, you know, bad dispositions, you know, just, just too fast that get cold first. And then, you know, we'll synchronize all of them. We'll, we'll track score pelvic measure. You know, we've been doing that now for about 10 years and when we started that process, that would we'd reject, you know, five to ten percent, and by doing it now, year after year, it's one or two percent at the most that get rejected. And then, then that, as they get bred, why we'll get somewhere in that oh low fifties is kind of the worst case to to low sixties AI bred on on our time AI. And then we use the, the herd book, and Tracy's actually working on it today for us from Semitol that we enroll all our cows in. So we'll pull, well, back up just one more second. We, we carcass scan every female. So we'll get that IMF score and the ribeye prior to breeding. And then we'll use that data along with our, our EPDs that were produced on the cows or on the heifers, excuse me. And, and we'll, we'll use yearling weights, a real focus for us and has been because of, because of us wanting to retain ownership. And we've focused a lot on the IMF score. And then we'll use the, the, the API from Simital and then the, and the terminal index. So, you know, as we pull those in and, and start sorting through them, what, what we're trying to do is make sure that we're, not selling the ones that are in the top half we're, we're, we're trying to sell that that bottom third to bottom half and then it'll be basically size you know everybody says i don't want a big cow but if you try to sell them a small heifer they won't bid on it but if you'll take them a big big heifer they'll always bid on those so you know the big frank heifers will, will sell those along with them but we're also trying to make sure that we're we're, we're retaining ownership on the on the best of the of the carcass merits and the yearling weight growth. Those are real strong features for us. And then, you know, we've worked on docility pretty hard here. 
we don't most most guys that buy our, our heifers all always seem happy with docility every once in a while there's there's always two or three here or there that that get somewhere that shouldn't but so those are kind of the main focuses that we're, we're using it for and after you've selected that initial group and, and cut the 25 thereabouts percent off i assume you're synchronizing those uh, what protocols are you using for synchronization yeah so we'll we'll use the 14 day so that pelvic measure and and all that on at that same time and then set, we'll put the cedar in run the 14 day we, most of those heifers are are out on in dry lots um coming at like in the winter and then we'll ship them to grass that day the next day and so they've got 30 days on grass like for a spring cabin our spring calvers and you know they're going to shrink some but hopefully we've gotten them we're not too too fleshy and then they're kind of adjusted to the grass and they've at least hopefully plateaued or started back growing again on the grass and so we feel like that's important to have bread on fescue and then that way we know that that they'll breed on fescue and i I think that's important quality for us selling bread heifers here in missouri they're not you know they haven't been growing up on your good native or your blue stems and come to missouri and wonder what this awful tasting stuff is they have a knowledge of it and they've 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 performed on it so like on those spring calves and all back clear up to weaning you'll wean those Will they go fairly quickly into a dry lot scenario yeah. and they'll develop at, you know, what, a pound and a half, two pounds per head per day gain until you synchronize them and then they're going to grass? Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. And so they'll they'll have that cedar in them while they're on that 30-day grass period, pull the cedar 14 days, let them have that heat, and then lutealize them to breed them 33 days after basically you took them to grass. Yes, sir. Yeah. And they'll stay on grass through the summer. You preg them and what, ultrasound preg check them in July, August, yeah. thereabouts? Yeah. We've been ultrasound now for about 10, 10, 11 years. And so we'll fetal sex. We fetal sex both the heifers and, and the cow. That allows allows us for sorting and when for marketing. It helps, it helps when you're tagging calves. Uh, you know, you get group of 200 out there and you got 10 or 15 in a day. And so if she's got a tag in rear that says it's going to, it's an AI sired calf with a, it's either a bull or a heifer. Why when they get mixed, why hopefully it, it helps us get them, get them tagged back to their mothers. And then after you've done that pregnancy diagnosis via ultrasound, you'll make at that point, I assume the decisions on which ones are staying home and which ones you're going to market either through any of those three or four channels. Yeah. So those were pregged back in August and we're getting ready to select those this week. Well, I wish I'd gotten them already pulled a couple of weeks ago, but, but this will give us, you know, 30 to, to 60 days prior to marketing them at the special sales to flesh them up a little bit. Sure. Okay. And I assume the biggest part of who you're keeping there after you've pregged is probably based off breeding date. And of course, like you said, using some of those API indexes, which that would be similar for our Angus folks, be similar to the dollar combined where it's a multi-trade index just on the Simmental breed, breed base. Yes. And okay, great. Talk to us just a little bit about the EPDs. Are those the same? Are those comparable to a registered Simmental seed stock animal EPD? 
Yes, it's the same okay. same prince, same same data going in. Okay. Weaning weights, carcass data that we that we get back from the feed yard that we submit. That's that's the idea. It's a, it's a lot of work, um, but I don't know how else we make. You know, we can make selections based on appearance, but how do we make those selections? You know, for our commercial cows, similar to you guys in the seeds dog business, and that's that. That's a data to me. It's going to be required going forward if we're going to be the the best cow herd we can be. We we need that information to make those quality decisions. Yep, I, there's there's immense value in that, and not everybody is set up where they can capture that. But when you can and you do, I, I think you have to use it, and you're proving that. From a marketing standpoint, when you go to sell those bread heifers, how much do your customers, potential customers and buyers, look at that as they make those decisions, or are are we guilty of, like you said, going and finding the biggest, flashiest one that's calving in the range when you needed a calve at your place and fit in? It's, it's mostly B. That's kind of what I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was at a, a meeting with some seed stock producers a few weeks ago and I was one of the commercial guys kind of on a panel with them and they were asking, well, you, you tell us don't overfeed the bulls, but if I don't have a bull fleshy, you don't bid on him. And it's same with the commercial bread heifer business. I, it, it, it's a catch 22. I do think because I do track all that information, I do capture a few customers that they know that what we're doing here, they hope that that passes down to the heifers they're purchasing. But in general, they want somebody that a heifer that still that they can handle that's big enough. Uh, and, and they know that they can, that it'll get bred back. And that that's a real important to us too, is, you know, we are those first calf heifers, are we getting them bred back at 90 plus percent? And, and that's kind of a, a point of emphasis for us is, you know, they, they got to breed back and, and, and remain in the herd. Yeah. We see the same things as, as we sell bulls here at Dale Banks. We, every customer may not look at every piece of data that we collect or every EPD that's based off of that phenotype or that data, but they know we do it and they trust that the, the integrity and the data is right. And then they know, regardless of what bull they find that they fall in love with, they're not going to be too far from, from right when he leaves daughters and things like that. So I think it's almost a cost of doing business or a, a way to get folks interested in the program first, and then they may pick the individuals just on how they look or like from there. Yes. We've used a, a lot of different bulls in our AI program. We were part of a national reference sire with the Hereford Association. You know, we got to see a lot of young sires, but we, we felt like we had too much diversity in our in our cow herd. You know, I, those were some really good young sires, but I would only end up with 15 females out of that 75 straws or something. And so we had lots and lots of different sires of, of our cows. And, and we've switch now back to just using one sire for two or three years here and we're we're excited about getting ourselves back to more of a a consistent female that we can build off of from that uh, i think there's lots of technology out there what they're doing at uh, on on the dna matings um that really five years from now could we feel like could really propel our operation forward 
from a breed standpoint, Bruce, what would the breed makeup of your cow herd be today? And do you see that changing drastically? And then also what sires are you using back both on heifers and on cows going forth? You, you know, we've used uh, Semitol and Charlay and Hereford semen all along with Angus. Um, we've got lots of crossbred cows. And, and the reason for that was that when we were pretty much all, all Angus back 10 years ago, you know, had, we were struggling with feet and longevity. And, and so we, we went to breeding them all different ways and we chased it at every shiny object you can imagine. And, uh, and I, I have a bad history of that, but that we've gone back today. We, we started a year ago. We breed every cow and even every heifer. We, we pretty much, we AI'd back to Sidon Stricker's Enhanced Bull. And, and, and everybody might want to, you know, write this down because this is really state of the art selection process here. Um, why we pick Seidenstricker? Well, I believe it's the top registered sire for the breed for the last two years. And I figured, well, all you smart Angus guys knew to, to, to register them. So why wouldn't they work in my herd? So that was, <laughs> and we've just got a relationship with Seidenstricker. So that's why we picked that bull. And that's why we're, we're moving forward. It, it kind of hit lots of different points, you know, growth along with the carcass merit and docility that and we're hoping that we'll get, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of half sisters. And then we feel like going forward from there, we'll figure out by mating, we'll figure out what that combination needs to be, whether it's Semitol or Hereford or, or just back to Angus that, that will propel us forward. On the cow side of things, are you also AI in most of those at least one time through? Yes. About 90% okay. of our cows get AI'd every year. And then turning, I assume, walking bulls or cleanup follow-up bulls behind that AI program. When it comes to buying those bulls, are you selecting, and, and we'll get into traits and things like that, but are you selecting two different types of bulls, i.e. a terminal type of bull that's just going to make steers and heifers bound for the feed yard? And on some herds, a replacement type of maternal-driven maternal, or are you just letting population genetics take its course and try to find balance there between the two? It, it's it's a little bit of both. We have some some Charlay bulls that we we're using on some of our older cows that you know that we don't intend to retain ownership on, or some of our, you know, smaller cows that we're, we're not maybe synchronizing some old, old cows on smaller farms where you just can't, don't have the time to capture 30 at a time and, and synchronize. So we use those on those. Then, then we're using all three. We're using strictly Angus on our heifers. Um, I still have some, uh, you know, bad dreams from back in the eighties on a semitol bull. So I, I, it's probably not fair today to say that, but in the breed, but those still come back to haunt me. So we're all strictly Angus on the heifers. And then we're using both Sim Angus and Herefords uh, cleaning up on them. We have not gotten to terminal and uh, maternal herds yet. I, I think we'll get there, but we're not there yet today. Okay. Describe to me the perfect bull as you go out and try to find that bull that does everything you need him to do trait wise if you want to throw in breed wise um, anything that can be a tool to select genetics what what makes up the perfect bull? I, I guess I'm, a I think he has to be at, in the upper 
echelons and 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 carcass merit in the in the high IMF or marbling score. Um, it has to be in the top of the of the yearling weight EPDs. And then you know I'm 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 not a show guy or anything, so I'm not very good at selecting by looks. So I I kind of rely on those numbers. I I do not select so much on birth weight we have you know clearly we have to have a certain standard we do for heifers but for cows i'm i'm looking to i'm looking for our cows to have a a 90 pound calf uh, i think that in industry we've gone way too far away from what a cow should be calving and i think people are giving up way too much production there in general so we're, we're looking for that so we're not looking for that real high ced real low birth weight bull for cleanup yeah, and then he, he just has to be able to get around. And we're, you know, we want him to be around. Well, because we're using him for, you know, 180 days. You know, he's he's got to be able to get around for a while and and contain some some sort of his condition. We'll use qu- quite a few bulls. We look at it from a different standpoint of not how many cows should a bull cover necessarily, which is part of the equation, but also part of the equation. How much is that open cost me? Uh, you know. Yeah. Today, an open is, it's not quite as wide as it was, but a lot of times that's a $1,000 a cow, right? And, and, and the, the value of a four or five-year-old. And so, you know, three or four percent pays, pays to buy another bull in a hurry. So we stock pretty heavy along with synchronizing and we expect to get a high, high level bred. In Missouri, we kind of need a, you know, both the female and the bull probably needs a pretty good big belly on him to handle the fescue, just the volume of, of low quality forage it's going to needs to consume. So uh, that, that's kind of something else. So a long lean bull might, might be good and length and all, but that's probably not what's best in Missouri. I would agree. And, and I could even say the same thing. I mean, the Flint Hills are as good as it gets here from May till july august september depending on summer rains but outside of that window i think the same thing holds true we need cattle with with plenty of depth and plenty of guts and plenty of room and volume to take in very low quality forage and and turn it into milk and meat backing up just a couple steps when you were talking about turning bulls out behind your ai program on cows do you go ahead and and naturally breed heifers that don't stick to your time AI? And if so, how long will bulls be out with those heifers breeding in the spring or the fall? Either way. Yeah, we we, we leave them out there till we pull them to sonogram them. We don't really pay any attention how long we, since we sonogram, we don't really pay any attention to how long the bulls actually out there a lot because we we know which ones are AI. We know which ones uh, kind of get in that next cycle after AI and, and then, and then we'll know the, you know, the April calvers, May calvers. Usually what we'll do then is we'll, we'll pull the, we'll, we'll pull them opens and the bulls the same day we sonogram them. And then the, the opens, we'll give them a luteolized shot in case they're shortbread. And then they are off to, to the, to either be sold or, or go on feed for our own account. Okay. So that segues into feeding those steers what's your management on those post weaning how long do you retain those or how long do you have those at your places and then uh, what weight are you sending those to feed yards out west you know mo- most of the time we're carrying them into the upper eighth or nine nine weights this summer i i carried some of our cattle longer 
you know, all the way to 1,100 pounds or so back here in Missouri, just because we were trying to carry them deeper into the market, hoping this fall would be better than the summer, which it has. But it, I would tell you that, you know, that, that cost of gain, you still got to pay for it somewhere. And uh, I'm, it, it doesn't make as much money as you think it does uh, on the napkin because the, the cost just, you know, carrying them cattle, you know, our, our cattle are, you know, we kind of, we breed them to perform and to grow and they're eaters, that's for sure. So they're, they're consuming, but you know, the best thing probably for us is get them pushed eight or nine here in Missouri, trying to gain two and a half, three pounds a day at the most somewhere in there and then get them off the feed yard and, and they're going to gain four plus a day. We're not going to have, we, we've got no compensatory gain. We're trying to carry to the feedlot. You know, we're looking for, you know, in a perfect world, the 15 to 16, 17 months of age, somewhere in there, most of our steers are going to get harvested. If we, if we feed them the way we normally do and get them pushed through and we're looking, you know, for a 1,450, 1,500 pound steer in that, in that range getting harvested. And that's the same for both your fall born and your spring born calves. You're basically making both of those calf feds long just past calf just feds, past calf consider. feds yeah yeah yep. okay. we, we would if if we had grass especially the falls um you know we'd have if we had some good grass in the spring we, we'd probably carry them a little longer but so far you know we've grown the cow herd and every time we got a chance to put a piece on some cattle on grass we put a cow there instead of a steer and i think that makes sense especially where your cattle from the closeouts that I've seen there on your BIF applications and things like that, they are, they're checking about every box you'd want them to check when it comes time to gain and, and you know, carcass quality and yield there at the, at the uh, processing plants. I would say we, we really believe in heterosis and we really feel like we've making a better cow, but when I mean, they say heterosis is your only free lunch, it is till you hang them up and then you, and then all of a sudden, maybe you're not kept maintaining the carcass merit that you're hoping for. And we're, we haven't done that. You know, we are not at 10% prime as a, like we are in the industry. We're, we're at two or 3%. And we, that's another reason that we went back to the enhanced bull and, and trying to get our carcass merit back in line and, and growing with the industry and getting more primes. Because I, I believe as an industry, we need to be 30 or 40% prime as an industry down the road here and hardly any selects. So we, we have changed back because we, we didn't keep pace. Um, we got some good cows that last a long time, uh, but we, we gave up carcass merit in the process. And I think that's a challenge that we all face, whether we're a, a single breed seed stock producer or a commercial cow-calf producer, is that balance between genetics, management, marketing, you name it, that is purely focused on the consumer and on the end product merit and, and value when we sell that carcass or retail cuts. And then, as you said, the, the replacement female that comes into the herd breeds on low to moderate inputs and stays there for 10 or 12 years. I'm not saying we can't have both of those, but if you just focus on improving one, quite often there is a, a response to the other and maybe an unintended response, but, but a response nevertheless. We, we do expect you breed, you seed stock guys to get that for us though. Okay. We're well, not letting I, you off the hook. I know at least one 
who is doing everything in his power to do exactly that. And I think there are a lot more of, of us just, just than, than us here at Dale Banks because, honestly, you look at the number one driver of profitability in any of our hurts, yours, mine, whatever, the, the biggest driver of profitability is, is reproductive efficiency. And especially, as you said, if you have more opens than just a few percent, I'm not sure we can make enough prime carcasses to overcome a continued loss in terms of reproductive efficiency. And that's that's the teeter-totter that we ride, and that's the balance that we try to find. And, and, and we, we talk about reproductive efficiency. This is kind of going off as you said, chasing chasing a shiny object. But we talk about fertility and reproductive efficiency like it's one trait. It's dozens of traits, maybe hundreds of traits, and that's why it's lowly heritable because it can be affected by so many things, nutrition, mineral, weather. You know, you said it yourself, just differences in rainfall and, and things like that. So that makes it even more difficult to select for. And that's, frankly, that's why some folks have opted for just feeding them whatever they'll eat and making sure that that you overcome any genetic pickups in terms of reproductive efficiency with with energy and protein and and we can do that but as as i hear about two dollar and fifty cent bases on on corn and in some spots in the nation right now that comes at a cost as well so yeah but again rest assured that at least here and i know a lot of places Ben and Darla and, and uh, Eddie would say the same thing that we've kind of got to work both ends of this this puzzle for yeah, sure. Absolutely. So you are currently president of Missouri Cattlemen's Association, is that correct? Yes, sir. Yes. And uh, no, Tracy, I noticed has also been pretty involved in Missouri Farm Bureau and Beef Industry Council, and you all both have have led a lot of of different ag organizations as as you've done your day jobs as well. Yeah, it's been rewarding. It's a it's a bit challenging to make it around to all the affiliate meetings around the state. You know, we're calving heifers right now, and that's I, I do that both spring and fall. So getting in the truck and uh, and getting off to a meeting down in Southwest Missouri very often throughout the years is difficult, but it's, it's been really rewarding to, to be a part. And, you know, you get to meet, that's a real plus of being, being in leadership is you're getting to meet so many great people around the state. And I've gotten to meet people around the country, uh, by being involved and being on a couple of committees with NCBA and the, and the live cattle marketing group and got, got no folks I would have never gotten the opportunity. So, you know, getting to know you and, and others in the organization, it's been been really rewarding. I, you know, I, I get there and there's so much to learn every day. You know, there's so many people doing so many things, and we just need to stay on the front edge of it as much as possible. Yeah, there's value to serving in those roles, but as you said, they they come with plenty of costs and time and and everything else as well. But that that learning, I think, makes it well worth it. Along those lines, and you mentioned NCBA Live Cattle Marketing Committee, my hat is tipped to you because I think a couple months ago when I got an email from you, you were the first person who actually volunteered and asked to be interviewed on, on Practically Ranching. Usually, I'll call somebody or see somebody and it'll take two or three 
calls and emails and begs to <laughs> to finally do this. And, and here you stepped up and, and said you'd like to be on. We've finally just gotten it done. But uh, I think there was a topic in terms of live cattle marketing that, that you wanted to talk about most. And here I've already bugged you for 45 minutes of, of our time about production stuff. But tell us a little bit what you've learned as and what you've heard from Missouri Cattlemen's members and other folks that you've talked with about our, our picture of fed cattle marketing today. We've had several of our past episodes, and I know you've heard most of those talking about those. I have my opinions and my outlooks on it, but I also am open enough that I want to hear from others some options and, and some ways that we think we can do a better job of finding the the base price of these fed cattle that we're marketing so that then we can use things like quality-based grids and things like that to, to assess the consumer value of those. You bet. I, yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity. We, we have policy at the Missouri Cattlemen's to, that we support and have helped with the development of the Price Discovery and Transparency Act that uh, Senator Fisher has uh, promoted and now um, Senator Grassley has on the Senate side. We were fortunate to have two congressmen, um, Congressman Cleaver here from the Kansas City area and Vicki Hartzler from Missouri to co-sponsor that in the House. And we just feel like the we need some change. And, I, I, you know, I, I got to sit on those uh, live cattle um, committees for NCBA. So, I mean, I, I feel like I've, I've listened to, to both sides. And I think what the Nebraska cattlemen and the Iowa cattlemen and Missouri cattlemen, many others all over the state have, have said makes, makes sense. And our, our policy is, is that we need uh, a minimum level of cash trade to create price discovery between the the feedlot and the cattle pack, uh, packer today. And we clearly do not have that in Kansas and Texas and the Southern Plains. And it's eroding in Nebraska uh, too. We, we never supported 5014 or uh, that would be way too disruptive to, to the industry. But we believe that all the packers should have to be bidders. And uh, I think that you know, for a lot of folks, they hear what's 10% or 15% or 50% or how does that really affect me? And I really boil it down to, you know, in Kansas or Texas, either state, you've got three packers and Tyson is one of those three packers in both states. And Tyson does not bid on cash cattle in either state. And so in Kansas, for example, you've got National and Cargill as competitors in Kansas. And if you want to sell cash cattle, you, you only have two guys to sell it to. And, you know, we'd have cattle in Scott City, Kansas on feed at a custom feed yard. And you'd say, well, I'd really like to just sell these cash. And they'd say, well, here's, here, here, uh, here's National. I got a bid out of National XYZ for shipment next week. And I say, well, how about Cargill? He goes, well, Cargill hasn't been here in a few weeks. I say, so I have one option if I want to sell cash. That's it. Because Tyson doesn't come and bid at these custom yards. They are all all through AMAs or formula pricing. You know, and I'm sure you can find exa uh, 
you know, opt- uh, some examples of where they actually bought cash. But for the most part, everybody in the trade knows that they don't buy cash. So here we are, we have no price discovery at the feedlot level in those in the Southern Plains. And because Cargill and National just kind of, they don't, I don't say, I'm not suggesting they're colluding. I'm just suggesting that as a commodity trader, if you know the other guy's not bidding a lot more by your phone calls and conversations, then there's real no reason for you to push and bid, right? When there's plenty of cattle around. So we don't get any bid and and uh, ask back and forth. And I just, you know, there's clearly not enough competition at that level today in the Southern Plains. And, you know, it's been dragging. You can say, well, there's more market rated cattle in, in, in the Southern Plains than the Northern Plains. But as you can tell, it, it's dragging and, and continuing to weigh on the market day to day. And, you know, there's, this is one time I would actually say Bill Bullard with RCAF actually is right. There's not enough competition between the big feedlots and the, and the packer. And so we, you know, we, we're dealing with a perishable product, right? It's not like I can say, ah, darn it. I'm mad. I'm going to load up my fat cattle in Scott city and I'm going to haul them back to Pennsylvania or something where the packer wants them more. That's not reasonable, not feasible. And, this market, you know, evolved into what it has over the years uh, because there was all there was still competition, and today we don't have that competition because of AMAs. And I, you, I sell AMAs. I'm not opposed to formula trading or whatever. I'm I, absolutely, but at some point, there has to be a minimum amount of competition to come up with the price that we 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 get for these for these cattle. And today in the Southern Plains, there's essentially no, no price discovery. I, and, and, you know, so I don't think it's so much about the percentages in Kansas and Texas and the Southern Plains. It's that we need to make Tyson or change the names of whoever packer you want, but they all need to be competing for cattle. And then they say, well, you're limiting my ability to, on where to, how to sell my cattle. Well, if Tyson all of a sudden isn't a hundred percent AMA, that ain't ten or fifteen percent that Tyson says I can't buy your cattle anymore. You don't think that feed yard's not going to go over to Cargill or National or JBS and say, "Can I work out an AMA with you?" Since Tyson's going to, I think those are, you know, just straw men that are getting thrown up in the argument. What we do know is that we just need more bidding going on and more bid ask going on in in the southern plains and if we don't make them all participate here they're going to continue to work on it in nebraska and and it'll continue to move away from less negotiated and and i'm not saying we can't move some but there has to be a minimum level if i have to sell 15 percent of my cattle cash so be it i i I gotta do it because i gotta get the other 85% of them priced somehow. And this market just continues to evolve away from it. And, and it's, it goes against Packers and Stockyards Act. Original, you know, a few big guys are getting preference over little guys. I mean, that's the reason Packers and Stockyards got started on the bricks back in the day at the 
at the stockyards in the in these terminal markets and to give fairness to all the producers and today you know the the fairness is not there and i just feel like we we as an organization and it's it's and who who really pays right it's our rural communities is if we constantly have a less dollars going back through the cycle it's our rural communities that lose right we've got less cows now you know the last two years you would think we'd be expanding the cow herd right with the prices for box beef if it had been distributed back through the last few last couple of years we should should be expanding our cow herds instead we because of weather we've contracted but also because of price because of low profitability it's been twofold and that's just bad for all of our rural communities all over the country so i've i've talked i've talked a lot there i should i should no, let you stop no, and ask some questions yeah, I, I I have I have plenty of questions always. Anybody that knows me and plenty of thoughts. And I agree with especially what you said there at the last about needing to figure out a fix, if for nothing else, but our rural community's livelihood and and sustainability. Now, I I think that there are a whole lot more. It's kind of like we talked about reproductive efficiency. There's a whole lot more things that are affecting this challenge or this problem in terms of profitability of the cow calf segment than just how cattle are purchased at the fed cattle or at the at the packing plant but but that's a big driver and i think you know just from us talking a few years ago and then some of these past podcasts i agree with the premise that we have to address this and find a better way of fairly and equitably pricing fed cattle especially to then base these grids and formulas and AMAs as they get lumped in together. I still haven't been able to convince myself or no one else has been able to convince me that going back to the old quote unquote negotiated cash model is the way to do it in conjunction with AMAs. If we were at if we were at 70 or 80 or 90% of the cattle being quote unquote on a negotiated type price. And then we were back to 1996 or whenever, when there were only 10 or 20% that were being sold on a grid, I think it works really well. I'm not. And, and the, the economists that I've talked with, I'm not convinced that 20 or 30 or even 50% is a critical mass enough to make that work. What I feel like is there's got to be a way out here that we, either through a negotiated grid or through negotiated, you know, some kind of a retail-based price picture that helps get to a consumer-focused base price that we can accomplish what it is we need to accomplish of passing that consumer dollar back through all four or five or six steps in the beef industry chain, you know, my wife and I and, and mom and dad just got the opportunity to go to the Certified Angus Beef Conference a week and a half ago. And at that conference, there were a, a few dozen cow-calf and, and seed stock producers, even less than that, feed yard owners, and then six or seven hundred retail and food service representatives. So, and a few packers, not very many, but most of them were food service folks, either chefs or wholesalers, your Cisco type reps that were selling to chefs. And it was, it was very educational for me to ask a lot of questions of them of how they sell and buy their product. 
And guys just shrugged their shoulders and laughed about the fact that it used to be if they were 30 days to as much as 90 days out on either their purchases of raw beef or their sales of further processed cut steaks or whatever the case may be, they thought they were in great shape. And today they're talking six and nine and even as much as 12 months out that they're pricing those cuts that they're bringing in from the packer or even booking those sales that are going to this next restaurant. So I think as we look at it from a whole beef, whole industry standpoint, the Packers' uh, interest in lining up cattle through AMAs, through contracts, through forward pricing, whatever the case may be, is not simply to rob us blind. It is because they know what they need six months out and what they are obliged to have, and so they're trying to do it here. The larger corporate feed yards are doing the same thing. I mean, if you were sitting at the, the hedge desk, you'd call it managing your risk, and I think that's what they're doing. I do, though, I do agree that we in the on the cow-calf side of things, and, and I think the feed yard owners and managers have to be key in this, regardless of how they're selling cattle today, because... When it comes right down to it, it is their business. Now, if they're trading your cattle that are retained ownership, it's also your business. But there are so few retained ownership cattle that, you know, we in the cow-calf segment are squawking the loudest about this. And yet it's, oddly enough, it's the feed yard owners and managers that are probably going to have to help us figure out how to better price these cattle because they're the, they're the last office or the last hands that generally are touching and making those marketing decisions. And, and, and the other thing that I want to be sure of as we talk about, especially as we talk about bringing the federal government in to mandate how cattle are marketed. I had Tom Field on as one of my earlier guests from up at Nebraska, and, and he, tongue-in-cheek, but I think you can back it up with facts, he has never been able to find one business where the federal government entered into and did a better job than it was doing when the market was working. Now, granted, with the cattle cycle as it is, there are times, and we've seen it the last three years, there are times when that market simply is pretty ugly as it's trying to work through the glut of cattle we saw, the backup that we had from plant fire, from COVID, from labor situations and things like that. Now, I think we've seen a significant, I don't think, uh, the, the profitability of packers will will attest, we've seen a significant shift of leverage from the packer processor back to the producer just in the last few months. They were making six, seven hundred bucks a carcass back at the height of it. I think last week when we saw some data out of, out of Oregon or Washington, they were somewhere in the 20s or $30 per carcass profit. So I think there's a leverage shift, there's a market shift, but I'm not one to just say, hey, the market will work itself out. I do think we can do better and we need to do better. I just don't know, let's say for instance, and then I'll pass it back to you. Let's say for instance, we get to an industry standard of 30% prime, which I would love to see and our consumers would love to see. And I think it would make us a very healthy industry. How do we reward you or anyone else for selling enough cattle that grade 30% or 40% prime if we're forcing a minimum percentage of them to go on to a, a cash market, which by nature can't be a 
grid type value-based marketing scenario. And, and, you know, we want to get at these arrangements that allow the big feed yards and the big packers to have control and have all these AMA cattle outside of the negotiated arena. I'm very fearful that when it comes time to sell my two pens of cattle or my customers few pens of value-based marketing cattle, there'll already be X percent that are lined up between, let's say, Tyson and the big feed yard in western Kansas, wherever the case may be, and they say, sorry, Matt, you and your customers are just going to have to sell cash, and you can't get any bonus from a 25-30% grading prime set of cattle because we've got this rule and We've got our 75, 80% locked up in these arrangements with the big guys, and we can't let them go. So you independents are going to be the ones that have to sell cash. We're talking about, if you go by Dr. Coons's numbers that they did for NCBA, you know, we're, we're talking uh, 10 to 15% cash in, in Texas and 15 to 20% cash, you know, equals price discovery per his numbers. Um, that they, he provided the NCBA. So I guess, you know, and, 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 you know, 18%, if I believe the numbers right, 18% of AMAs is strictly a pricing, no premium or discount. It's strictly a pricing mechanism going on in it. So to, to say that that's going to limit your opportunity, why wouldn't they, why would the, would in the world would a, packer not want your better cattle i, I mean I, I guess i i don't see the, the logic that he's going to lock out the best cattle and not take them the only way he's going to be able to do that right is if you if you if you if you allow him and 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 cactus or freonas and all that to continue to consolidate the feeding deal and 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 bring and, and restrict that which you could always feed there, right? With one of those guys to, 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 to be a part of the program. But unfortunately at some point in here, you have to have price discovery. And I'm, I'm, I'm a believer, Matt, that we're going to vertically integrate our industry in some form or another, right? Whether I've got, my family's got 20,000 cows 20 years from now. And we're, we're feeding them at our new American food groups. We're killing them all there, there, uh, here in Missouri or whatever it might be. I, I think there's going to be more vertical integration. What I'm contending is we have no, we're not, we have no way to discover price in that, in that segment. And until, and today as we vertical, that's the thing that really is to me scares me the most is this problem didn't just happen during our black swan events over the last three years this has been going on there's you know 50 14 iowa guys were talking about that 10 years ago right that that, that we needed needed this it, some of us have been squawking about this for a long time it, you know it's just we finally got enough traction in the last couple of years to bring it bring it to out out in the open this has been going on and it's been a problem and we just we finally got some traction, and we're trying to address it today. So, I, I guess I, you know, you're you, I assume I, I'm a USPB uh, member. I assume you are. You, you may even have slots. I, I don't know. I, I don't, but I can usually lease those slots. But I would assume 
we're going to find those mechanisms for the good cattle. We still, though, it comes back to, and I, I don't know how you may, you you can't, we can't seem to get the pat the feedlot guy to guarantee us how many is going to be. And the most logical spot is Congress, government. We need to force the packers to buy X amount of cash to try to create price discovery and, and for all of the cattle. And, and, if, and the only logical way to do that, unfortunately, is to go force the packer to do, to do it. Because I don't know how you break it out among each different feed yard or whatever. It makes, just seems like logistically the only way to do it is at, at the packer level. And, you know, NCBA went to Tyson and asked them to purchase more cash cattle. Right. And they basically said, we're going to do what's best for us. So that, that, and I don't begrudge that I, if I was Tyson and I could not be a bidder in the market and, and have less competition to bid, to procure my product. I get it. I understand it. If, if the shoe was on the other foot, I, I'd probably be doing the same thing they are. But once again, it's bad for our, our, we constantly have a downward bias on the price and we need, we need more competition in that level. And I don't see another alternative. I'm not, I haven't seen anybody offer another alternative. And if it's bid the grid, that's fine. I'm, I'm good for bidding that. But the problem with the current bid the grid that we have today, there's no bid and ask. Okay. It always just ends up being priced at whatever the cash market gets tra- traded at. How many times you ever hear somebody say, well, my bid the grid was, let's say, so we traded $1.44 in Southern Plains last week. Ever hear anybody say the bid to grid traded at $1.43 or $1.45 or $1.46? None of that's going on out there. It's all just getting traded, turned in based off whatever the cash price is. So how we do have negotiated grid in the marketplace, but it's not really negotiated much. Sure doesn't appear. Yes. Sure not talked about. Yeah, I w- not with the level and the cattle numbers where they are today. I would guess that in six months, I mean, I never thought I would hear of somebody paying $2 over the price of corn when it was seven and a half, eight bucks already. Yeah, sure. And, and so, you know, I don't, we have gotten in the beef industry and Larry Cora and I talked about this three or four weeks ago on the podcast. We've gotten to a point in the consumer beef industry where there's almost this price inelasticity of demand for high quality protein or high quality beef. Absolutely. CB and prime is yep. what I'm going to call it. Yep. And I think that we are on the cusp, especially as we see cattle numbers decline and they are going to decline in a hurry because of just what you said. We haven't had price signals and we haven't had the weather that has allowed people to expand the cow herd. What we've done is consolidated it into fewer hands and we'll see that consolidation grow exponentially over the next two or three years. And I think we'll see the feed yard consolidation, you know, all the new bunk space that's being laid out there in, in the Western parts of the cattle feeding industry, they're already very established, fairly sizable feed yards. So your, your statement about consolidation is right on the money that can do one of two things. What I think it will do as much as I appreciate the independent cattle producer, and the small family managed, family owned 
family worked farm, what that that consolidation may do is give those feed yards a better opportunity to negotiate with the big three or four. The irony of it is that's probably going to result in, in my opinion, if we truly want to get the most value out of each carcass, then we figure out within our industry how to get that back all the way equitably through the system. But if we want to truly get the most dollars back out of each carcass, it's probably going to be more pay for what you produce, not less. More value-based type scenarios. Now, 18% of that being in just a forward contracted, forward priced, non-grid type sale, we can argue and discuss that. But I'm more concerned with maintaining every producer's ability to get paid for what they produce than I am about anything else. And and I think that the that the challenge that we have to solve here is not we aren't selling enough cattle in a negotiated grid. It's that we're doing a terrible job of establishing that price in the first place. And if we're already terrible marketers with 15% of the cattle, 12% of the cattle some weeks, 22%, I mean, some of the worst times as far as price and profitability was when we were selling more and higher amounts of cash cattle. If we're not good at establishing a fair and equitable price for these cattle in the first place, what happens when we're forced to sell more of them? I mean, most feed yard managers today have lost that tool out of their toolbox. There's a few of them that are still really good. And I'm glad that they are there on today's scenario. But for the most part, when I was a kid, a feed yard, one of the first things that I thought a feed yard manager had to be good at was pricing and selling cattle. Today, they need to be good at buying inputs, at employee relations, everything that you just said you learned from working in the Bartlett and the Lansing type. Too, that's today's feed yard manager too. Labor and inputs is what they're focused on. So I don't know that today's model gracefully allows us to say, okay, we're going to go from here and tomorrow you're going to have to add two or three or five percent to what you're selling or if, if they're selling zero percent you're gonna have to add 15 percent to a cash trade deal and they go okay i have no idea how to even do that um, but okay and guess what the packer will buy those really good cattle and they'll buy them cash that's what i'm afraid of they they squeeze me out and they buy a super high grading set of cattle that would have brought a hundred or two hundred back in premiums and they buy them on the cash market you're giving them too much credit okay who's Matt that packer he, he 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 used to have a staff that negotiated too right he doesn't have that anymore right they they they, they used to have remember all those guys when you you were young and working for aaa you you were you those guys had staff they're schedulers now right they aren't yep. traders that yeah, I rode. I rode in the car with them. Yeah, I I know exactly how they worked, and I do not want to go back there. I I rode in Texas Panhandle and Western Kansas in the mid '90s when we were selling 80 to 90 percent of them as cash, and it all happened within a few minutes. And if you caught one weak link in the feeding segment, and they pulled the trigger and sold two pens of junk, 
it everybody's phone started ringing and the market was established at 66 bucks nobody realized that they were a third holstein a third coriani rope and steers and a third whatever but everybody sold at that price and that's what i don't want to go back to but but we're not saying that we're not saying that. we're just saying that we have to have x i mean it could happen just the same today right only communication is better between us all right there's hopefully. there's twitter <laughs> and all that other stuff so hopefully you yep, you yep, vet yep. that stuff out uh, more actively today but we, we, we still have to figure out some way to come come back and price them anyway and I, i'm i'm with you that there's some sort of blockchain mechanism i i'm yeah. i'm confident 10 years from now i prop my cattle probably or if i'm still around my boys still allow me to be around that that <laughs> that, that, that we are we, we are uh, my cattle won't go out there and I, and I won't necessarily be trading cash cattle um or selling on a grid i i may be in some alliance some you know we've get hit up by the piedmontese and the wagus and all that stuff you know sure. because of our numbers well i that, i just don't think that's where we want to be today i don't think we there's an alliance that you know whether it's the 44 farm guys or pick pick, pick your pick your group whatever right. i'm not sure that's matured enough here all i what we suggest is that we still have to figure out a way to price that and I do think we'll vertically integrate. I do think we'll our cattle, the good cattle, will will go to there. And if it's some sort of blockchain pricing, I'm not opposed to that. But today we don't have it. We don't get some piece of the pie of the retail dollar. All we're getting is this lack of trade between the the big feedlots and and the and the and the big big four packers and somewhere in between until we get there we still need some price discovery and transparency and that's what the second part of this conversation should be the transparency part of it that we haven't even got to right that that's that we really thinking about it back here in missouri is is the transparency sure it'll be nice to know maybe what tyson and cactus's deal is we won't know the names on it but we'll be able to at least maybe see what their formulas are being priced at what i really think it's more important this transparency part 10 years from now as we when we do finally figure out blockchain and pricing that's when it's going to really matter to the cow calf guy how i need to know how that whole block see how that blockchain process works down the road so i know when i'm getting called on and allowed to sign my herd up we will we will I'll, I'll have some comparisons to make decisions on not just who comes and knocks on my door as a traveling salesman to get me hooked up I, that, that. that that's what i really am, i'm excited about that portion of it for the future of, of our industry yeah i i think blockchain and and several of these technologies that are here now and becoming more and more validated and, and uh, I guess more workable solutions. I, I think somewhere in there is, is where we land, but I will argue that the transparency piece, if we're talking blockchain, that's as far away from transparency 
as anything we've discussed because that's one of the things that I think has been the calling card for blockchain in about any industry that it's utilized is that it's a way to perfectly transmit information between let's say buyer and seller in this case or anybody that's involved in this program and has a right to see that but doesn't allow it to be seen by anybody else and one i mean i may i'm no i'm no tech guru but one of the things that most companies that use blockchain use it for is the propriety and the privatization of it and so yeah, I think that technology has a lot of validity, but as far, and granted, if the industry, i.e. buyers and sellers, packers, feed yards, anybody who has an ownership, if we decide, hey, we want this to be free information for, for the public, you can always build that into it. But most of the time, I think blockchain probably gives us less transparency as, as opposed to more. It may be more responsive to what that consumer dollar is driving through the chain but i think it's probably not going to be more transparent and and i i still and and again i don't i don't mean to be argumentative but my belief is that we truly are seeing a trickle down effect of the consumer dollar now was there a time for a year and a half to two two and a half years because of a lot of different events one being the exact AMAs that we as producers have been creating over the last 30 years, but others being, as you said, these black swan events. And we cannot, you're right, we cannot blame this all on the Holcomb fire or COVID or the labor shortage. It was started back when we as producers started saying in the mid 90s that there's got to be a better way of marketing cattle. They can't all be worth 63 cents a pound. And so we started this. Now it's up to us to fix it. I think that, as you mentioned, I think that some of these technologies that we have access to, some of the interests by a lot of different people, I agree. We have, and and I was sitting in those live cattle marketing committees at NCBA when I held your spot with Kansas Livestock Association. That was in 2015. And we were having the same knockdown dragouts then that you were having now. They didn't last quite as long as yours <laughs> did there a summer or I two hope, ago. I hope not, yeah. Oh, man, I, I don't think I could have made that one. But I say that because that was six to seven years ago. And we had committees within KLA that we were trying to hammer this out because, yeah, we recognized there was a problem. But because we were still making pretty good money at the Fed cattle level, it was hard to get anybody very passionate about it. Now, the last two to three years, not a challenge to get people passionate about it. And that's probably okay. That may be what we need to get people to thinking and discussing and figuring out a solution for what I say is the true challenge. And that is a, a consumer focused base price that allows us to market these cattle on a value based scenario as we wish going forward. I just don't know that it's worth taking a step back in time for the intermediary until we get to like you said, something that involves blockchain or whatever in 10 years. I think the time's now. I actually, and I may be all wet, I think there are packers that are interested in a better way of buying these base price, what I'd say non-AMA, non-grid, non-formula cap. You're, you may be right that, 
In fact, I know you're right that their reps that are running up and down the road going to feed yards are no longer negotiating the price on cattle. They're scheduling. Now, I think they're negotiating a few, but their job is way different than it was when I used to ride with them in the mid-90s. Um, maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. I don't know, but I, I think that there is value in figuring out where we need to be in the next few years, not just, hey, let's stick a patch on a blown out tire and hope that we can make it to town. Now let's just put the spare on and get a new tire or rebuild the tire or whatever. That's a terrible analogy. But I, I just, I think that it's dangerous to ask Uncle Sam to hold our hand while we fix this instead of just as an industry sitting down and exposing everything that is a problem and fix, <clears throat> excuse me, fixing it ourselves. I'm I'm not a, a, opposed to to, to to that conversation at all, and for sure not. It's I just getting it done. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, but I, I, you know, I don't see the the Packers saying how about how about X or how about Y. I'm I'm not seeing. Oh, any of those. I think they are, Bruce. I, I, well, they aren't in Missouri, but and I I didn't see them showing up to the Fed, the live cattle meetings. Well, coming up so with that, new- that's the difference. That's one difference between them and us, right or wrong. They know they only have three other competitors, and so if you and I are talking about what works for us in cattle selection or genetic selection, we'll sit here and talk about it on a podcast, and I'll let eight hundred people listen to it in the next week or two. And we don't think there's anything wrong with that. Somebody wants to steal your secret sauce and show up at the next land sale or whatever else next to you and, and outbid you for that piece, of course, or, or find the next lease operator. We, in our, in our culture, we don't have a big problem sharing trade secrets. Those guys have a big problem sharing trade secrets, good or bad. They're not transparent quite often because, not because they don't want us to know what it is they're up to, they don't want the number two, three, and four to know what they're up to either. And so it is tougher. But I do. I, I, maybe I'm being overly optimistic. Maybe I've got that farmer cap on and I, I'm, I'm optimistic instead of sitting behind a hedge desk being realistic. But I, I really do think that there is work by both buyers and sellers, packers and beef industry producers, to figure out a way to make this more sustainable and because honestly they don't have much of a business if we don't grow this cow herd and if we don't have profit signals to tell us to expand this cow herd they go to 28 million beef cows out there and try to figure out how to keep those plants running efficiently they got a problem and so long term they there is benefit in them making sure that their suppliers i.e us are still around and still making enough money to, to go forth. So anyway, that's probably a little altruistic, but I do believe they, they, they know there's a need and a challenge. And, and we've, we've exposed that very well over the last few years or the industry has. And I, I think there's some steps being taken. I just, it makes me nervous to ask uncle Sam to mandate a, a fix. Yeah. Well, it's fair to agree to disagree, I think. And, yep, and, yep. and the, the, the one last thing, point I, I, I think in the conversation is, you know, we, we got these information that was provided out earlier in the, earlier in the summer when from the from some of the different professors or experts around around the country of how much it would cost our industry to 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 to, to go back to 15 percent negotiated or whatever. 
which I think is just crazy numbers that they're throwing out there. I mean, were we really, were we really losing hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars 15 years ago because we were negotiating? Of course, of course not. Um, so, so asking to stop consolidating down to, to, to where there is even less negotiated cash it, it is not a huge cost to us. And I'll bet none of those professors ever ask, you know, in their mock feeding trials, what happens if I only get one bid? You know, I think we, I know who's paying their grants and all that stuff, but come on guys, let, let's, let's be realistic. We, you know, even I, well, I was a trader, hopefully I got it. But if you got three bidders instead of two bidders, you're trying to tell me that that's, that's not better for competition. I mean, I know, I know you wouldn't want to go from 50 bidders on your, on your bull sale to five bidders for your bull sale. And, and I think knowing that each packer has to participate will create more competition. And it's, to me, it's crazy to, to think that we just let, let Tyson not be a bidder at all in the Southern Plains. I mean, that, that's what it boils down to. We need all the packers to participate at some level in the cash trade. And, 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 and to consolidate down where we only have one bidder in the marketplaces is just tough, for, tough on, our, on our, our industry. And it doesn't bring price. It doesn't mean higher prices. I'm not suggesting I know that because there's three bidders, we're always going to be higher. That, that, that's supply and demand wins out over all. But we constantly have a downward bias due to the lack of participants in it. So, I I think that yeah, just, I, just I, hurts us. Yeah, I I see what you're saying, but it, as you talked about 15 years ago, I had to go back in my pictures here. I took a picture of a slide that they had at the CAB conference, and again, this was telling the beef industry story of quality of product for the consumer. Mm -hmm. And Randy Block was there, and he showed this slide of beef industry profitability. And so, and I'm sure you've seen it before, it would be cow-calf segment through the packer. So cow-calf, stalker, feeder, and packer. And he had two blocks from 1980 till 1998, total industry profitability averaged 32 bucks a head split four ways it's never split equally right there's some of those bars that were below there were some of those bars that were above but for 18 years and if we went before that outside of a little piece in the 70s when it got as you remember got absolutely nutso but it probably wasn't that good 32 bucks from 98 which would have been right on the heels of all these AMAs, U.S. Premium Beef, you know, the future beef model that granted it didn't last, but Ranchers Renaissance, all these producer-led initiatives that said we want to be paid more for the good ones and send some industry signals. We think we've averaged from 98 until 2022 industry profitability per head. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the number. $305 per head. Yeah. And he breaks it out, and I can send you this slide. He breaks it out, and the last one, two, three, four, five, the last five or six years, the yellow bar, which is the Packers' share of that profit, is pretty substantial. Absolutely. Prior to that, 
even from 98 until 2015, it was almost non-existent. Now, granted, we were through two supply cycles where we had the stick and we were in control and the leverage was on the production side. And you've got 2014 in there when we, <laughs> this is crazy to me, but $1,100 per head total industry profitability. Profitability, yeah. net profit split three ways because the Packer wasn't even on that one because they were actually negative, negative for a year. So all I'm saying is let's be careful what we wish for. In my opinion, we do need to figure out how to best keep the factory, us, working and, and, and sustainable but let's not go back to that time when the whole industry was trying to split up a a pie of 30 bucks per head in total profit. And that was, we were a straight up commodity. We were doing nothing but trying to put blood on the floor and a slab of meat on the plate. We didn't care if they liked it or not. We just knew we had to do it as cheap as we could. And, and it, you talk about sustainability, it wasn't sustainable. And I think this model is, we're having some major growing pains is what I would say. And we've got to figure out how to work through those so that we still come out on the other end and are able to capture that profitability. Then it's up to us and of course the market leverage and supply demand fundamentals and things like that to figure out who, what is an equitable division of those, of those profits. But, but they got to be there first. We've got, they've got to somehow they got to come from the consumer and get into the industry before we can figure out who is supposed to get what. Sure. I don't, I don't think we want to go back to that. I I think we have lots of good signals. I just that. I don't think 10 or 15% and all packers participating in 10% of the cash trade of all the cattle in the Southern Plains takes us back there. So is that enough? Is that enough to actually move the needle? Especially, I mean, how many Southern Plains I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to make the hair on the back of some of my panhandle friends stand up, but how many Southern Plains yards have you been through? Been through? I, I don't know. Uh, not. It's a different it's a different set of steers than what you're sending. Significantly oh, different. I, I, no, I'm 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 get I get that I, I get okay. that. There's different qualities all over the country, right? I'm I'm, I'm well, great. but it's significantly different. I, but there's still a percentage of it. Something needs to trade cash, and we need the, the contention is that all three packers need to, all the packers need to be participating. All the four majors need to participate in the cash market so that we have multiple bidders. If, if you don't have a, if you don't have a market for that, what I'd call high cut ability, maybe more variable quality beef. I mean, if, if greater Omaha, yep. Grant, they're not a big four. I'll, I'll use national. Yeah. If national is focused on white tablecloth, high end, prime and CAB and you force them to do business on cattle that are probably not going to meet that on a very high percentage. Is that a fair way of telling a capitalist country how their businesses should do their business? I'm, but I'm, I'm not forcing them to, 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 to buy that. I'm I'm only, I'm only asking because national today is in the cash market, um, but we're, we are just saying that X percent should has to be negotiated. We just need some sort of competition. Y- yeah, I think it's okay to 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 have them go out and in the cash market 
go buy more good quality ones. I mean, if, if, if that's what it takes for, for us to get price discovery, yeah, how, how else are we going to get price discovery? If they, why, why won't we all of a sudden, why, Matt, are we going to allow Kansas and Texas to be 100% AMAs and no price discovery? That's where we're headed. On, we won't have a lack of price discovery. It may just be discovered using different indicators. Well, well I'm good with that, but nobody is offering those today. Nobody is offering those other indicators today. And so we need, we need some sort of ability to have multiple bidders in the marketplace. At, at this point, until we until we come up with an alternative, and that doesn't just because we have multiple bidders doesn't mean that we go back thirty years in time. Yeah, I just I you, you may be right that that may be the only way. I I still haven't accepted that that's the only way. I think that the energies that we put toward this challenge need to be focused on the windshield, not the rear view mirror. And that's my biggest problem is looking back to try to solve tomorrow's problem or today's challenge for tomorrow. I think, I think is, is less than ideal. I would say <laughs> again, like you said, it, it's you and I, I look forward to more conversations like this. Cause I think that's what, that's what helps us get at real solutions, whether it be on marketing today on, reproductive efficiency and fertility tomorrow on hybrid vigor next year. That's why I started this podcast and it's discussions like this that I think, you know, there may be somebody bouncing across the pasture in a pickup right now that goes, you know what? I got an idea. And I would encourage any of you to call somebody. I, I'm, I'm not the packer. I don't, I'm not trying to make this, my proprietary solution for the industry, but I do believe strongly enough that we've got to come up with one that works and works well for those that, that want to be part of it. And so I would just, you know, encourage you, encourage everybody that's listening. Let's keep thinking about this and, uh, you know, whatever the solution is, I think that we do need to spend some time making sure that there aren't more unintended consequences than there are, you know, Absolutely. And, I, and I, I, I would tell you that should this we, we get price discovery and transparency passed, do you think the packers are going to come up with and the big feedlots going to come up with workarounds? Absolutely. I, 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 have, I have no panacea here. I, I, I know that this isn't just this doesn't fix us long term. Right. But this is this is a way to try to get some competition bid back into that segment will we and then we'll have to work on it again and, and again and again yeah, I, I i don't yeah. i i hope the industry comes up this maybe this gets us to a point that we move forward with new new ideas and new opportunities but i do want to say for sure that i pre, i appreciate the opportunity to, to 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 get the message out on on your podcast i i know i, I want to do that for sure i, I really appreciate well, the opportunity I yeah, I appreciate you being on here. And, and uh, like I said, I, as you've probably figured out, I'm, I'm always up for a good debate. And uh, I hope anyway, after I'm finished, I've got more respect, not less for the person that I maybe didn't necessarily agree on all the topics. But, and for sure, in this case, that's the truth. And, and I appreciate 
appreciate you being on here and sharing your thoughts and, and perspectives. And we'll look forward to con continuing the visit and keep thinking and keep doing. We'll keep doing that. Thanks so much, man. All right. I appreciate the you opportunity. Bet. You bet. It's time to invest in practical, profitable genetics from Dale Banks Angus. We'll sell 145 yearling and coming two-year-old bulls on Saturday, November 19th. They're the top end of our 2021 calf crops, bred for over a century to offer a balance of calving ease, docility, maternal excellence, carcass merit, and sound feet and legs. They're ranch-raised, freeze-branded, fertility-checked, and ready to work either this fall or next spring. Catalogs will be available in late October. Contact us today to get on the list. Videos of all bulls will be available prior to the sale. Come see us November 19th northwest of Eureka, Kansas, or bid online at cci.live. Call or text Matt Perrier at 620-583-4305 or go to dalebanks.com.